Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, church. It's good to be with you guys. I want to just pause and say thank you to our AV team back there. They are scrambling this morning to get things working, and I just really appreciate their efforts. I know how stressful it can be. And uh, why don't we just pause for a moment, and for everyone involved in our service live at home, the team responsible, let's just pray for peace to settle over us, for distractions to be pushed to the edge, and that right now, in this moment, we would fully connect to what God is doing in this place. God, we just acknowledge that the way we have to meet Sunday to Sunday, looking for a place to worship, it's not ideal comes with a lot of uh, difficulties, unexpected twists and turns. But we thank you for those in our church so committed to working hard at finding solutions. We thank you for the way that the team has been scrambling this morning. We now pray for peace to settle over our whole church. Those who are here physically, those who are at home watching online, that all distraction and all frustration will be pushed to the side. And that right now, we would attend to you. Lord, perhaps some of us walked in here this morning with strong feelings or echoes of conflict and the troubled week we had still in our hearts. We pray even those things, just for an hour, will be pushed aside and that your voice would shine through, would bring comfort peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I find it remarkable how fast the human heart gets used to things. Do you ever notice how quickly things get old? I mean, even stuff that originally took our breath away, um, stuff that made us pause and and marvel and wonder, like after a little while, it's old again. And I don't know about you, but um, as I get older, that's happening more and more frequently, and it's happening faster and faster. You know, when I go on vacation, my favorite moment is when you first arrive at your destination, and you open that hotel door, and you see the view, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, this place is awesome. What a house, or whatever it is, you just, you're excited. But my least favorite moment is not when I realize it's almost over and we have to go home. When I was a kid, that was the worst part of vacation for me was, oh crud, mom and dad are packing, that means we got to go back to our lives. That's not the worst for me anymore. The worst part of vacation for me now is that moment, and I know it's coming, when the wonder wears off, And this beautiful place I'm at is just another place where I sleep and eat and go to the bathroom. And it's just another place. And I think because I'm 50, almost five now, I've been in a lot of places. I've seen a lot of things. It takes, it's so hard for things to blow my mind now. And even when they do, within like six days, three days, an hour, I'm used to it already. I wish that weren't the case, but it seems to be hardwired into human nature 
that in order to stay sane, like our minds adjust quickly to new realities. And it's sad because sometimes the most powerful things in our lives are the things that leave us numb, that we are forgetful of when we most need to remember. Now, when that numbness, that coldness starts to settle in and things become overly familiar, I think for most of us, our instinctive approach to that is, I got to find something new to look forward to. So even, I know people like this, even as they're not yet packing to go home from their current vacation, they're already online looking at places for the next one. Because if you don't have something to look forward to, you start... To, to get short of breath, you feel like panicky, like, oh no, life is going to be normal again. I don't want that. And so our normal approach, our response to the normalcy, the familiarity of life is to keep dialing up the excitement, the novelty, so that we never grow bored. And I suppose for a while, if you have enough money and time, you could make that work. But I found it's not really a successful strategy. Sometimes when that numbness settles in, the most important thing we can do is not forward to the next exciting thing. You know, when Jesus instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, this thing we're going to do today, he did it by saying these words, do this in remembrance of me. He said this to his closest friends, but he was also saying it to us. It was recorded for our benefit so that not, not just them, but we would also continue to observe this meal because it was meant to have a very particular purpose. This symbolic meal that we take, and it's hard to call a piece of cracker and a little cup of juice like a meal, but it represents something greater. It is food and drink with a purpose, and its purpose is for us to recall something that we cannot afford to forget. Because I think Jesus understood the human heart. He knew that the wonder of new life, of seeing the resurrected Jesus in a few days walk out of his tomb pretty quickly. And understanding this about us, he gave us something we are meant to do over and over in a regular cadence so that we're made to remember something that our minds want to forget. I want to point out some things that we're meant to remember whenever we sit at the Lord's table to take communion. And I'll confess, I, I researched and wrote this message largely for, to preach to my own heart because I find that when I do anything as an Enneagram 7, if I do anything more than once, it's boring. It's like, it's like it takes a lot for me to stay at something repetitive and find the meaning in it. And I have taken communion so many times over the course of my life and because it's so familiar and so symbolic, I struggled a lot to understand each time, what is it that I'm going through? What is this supposed to mean? And this week, as I studied it, I understood a little more deeply why this is such a gift to us. When we sit at the Lord's table, one of the things we're meant to do is remember our history. That's another way of saying remember our roots, where things got started. I find that is a very powerful remedy to a heart that's grown cold. It's not to sit where you are right now and think about all the ways that people are hurting you or things have gone wrong or life hasn't turned out the way you want. That may all be true because life does happen. But I find that when my, my heart is in that place, one of the most helpful things is to go back to the beginning of that thing, the beginning of whatever it is that has left me feeling cold and begin dwelling on the wonder of that fresh start. 
I love when Shutterfly or Facebook sends me these emails. If you, if you know me at all, you know, I have a pretty rocky relationship with email. It's convenient, but I kind of hate it. The least favorite part of my day is sitting down at my computer and opening the mail app. But I really get a spike of adrenaline when I see something come in from Shutterfly or Facebook, and it begins, remember 12 years ago. Do you guys get these emails? Aren't they the best? I get these things where it's like, you remember 12 years ago on this day, and it's a picture of me and our, our kids at the pumpkin farm, and they're all small and innocent and cute, and, you know, like between that point and today, lots has happened. We've done things to each other that are disappointing. Kids, and now soon my family's going to be my wife. And our kids can have their own life. And, you know, I'm not sure what to do with myself. At times I'm giddy with excitement. At times I'm really sad. But everything is changing. I'm losing something really important. And I have all these strong feelings... You know, when I see professional athletes look really bored out on the field or resentful that fans want their autograph, I'm like, how do you ever get used to something like that? Well, do you remember the day at the draft when the team you longed to play for shouted out your name, put that baseball cap on your head? Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember when you got your acceptance letter at the university that is killing you right now? That's kicking your butt. Do you remember... When that person said, yes, I like you, to the day at the hospital when that baby came out. Do you remember your first day at this church? Apprehensive, nervous, wondering if anyone was going to welcome you. You had been to churches before. Maybe you left a church that deeply hurt you. If you're still here, praise God. Why'd you stay? Something happened early on that told you this might be a place you can stay. And even if that is not where you are today, it's really helpful to pause and remember what it was like in the beginning. Because origins matter. Roots matter. When you're feeling untethered, remember that the other end of you was still attached to something. See, the annual Passover meal, which the Jews observed every single year, coincided with the night of Jesus' arrest. That, that was not uh, coincidental. It was intentional. The Passover meal was a meal that they, the Jewish people ate every year ceremonially in remembrance of a great day of deliverance many, many generations back. When their ancestors had been slaves in I- Egypt for 400 years, God decided to set them free, and the way he did it was a series of plagues accompanied by Moses, faithfully and boldly saying to Pharaoh, accompanied by Moses, faithfully and boldly saying to Pharaoh, let my people go. When Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to do it, God sent plagues, and each plague was like a crescendo. It was an escalation of hardship trying to break the strong will of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, but they would not let go of their slaves. Finally, God sends the angel of death, and he says, this will be the one that breaks the camel's back. And on that night, an angel of death would pass over all of Egypt, and in every household, the firstborn would be put to death. The only way to be spared this night of death 
would be if they would obey God in faith according to his careful instructions, and they slaughtered a lamb, and they would eat that lamb in a certain manner as their last meal in captivity before God set them free. And they would collect the blood of that lamb, and they would use a tree branch, and they would paint that blood on the doorposts and the side posts of their, their house. And whenever the angel of death passed over, he would only be looking for one thing. His algorithm was set to recognize one thing. Is there the blood of that lamb covering over the doorway of this house? And if he saw it, he would just pass over and spare all the occupants of that house. It did not matter to him the ethnicity or nationality of those people. It didn't matter whether the person had been a good person or an evil person. What mattered was that in faith they obediently did as God instructed, trusting God to be their salvation and not their own selves. This was the event which broke the will of the Egyptians and eventually led to them being released from slavery And so every year, the Jews would celebrate a meal to recall that day when the only thing that made a difference was God in his mercy choosing to pass over some and not others. No one likes to be passed over, but that was one night you were really glad not to be noticed. Jesus uses that celebration, that remembrance day, as the day that he would be arrested and would institute this meal. And Jesus said in Luke 22, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. See, what Jesus was doing that night was connecting what he was about to do to what that, the, the Lord had done at Passover. He was saying that at Passover, God spared the people who belonged to him, and the only distinguishing thing between them and the others was the mark of the blood of the lamb over their household. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to do something now. Something is going to be done to me willingly that will accomplish far more than that sacrificial Passover lamb could ever accomplish. That lamb had to be sacrificed year after year after year, pointing backwards to a memory, but also pointing forward to a day when that would stop being necessary. Because the blood of an animal can only accomplish so much. But what Jesus is saying is what I am about to do is to fulfill what this Passover, one of the most sacred observances in the Jewish calendar, had always stood for, what it was reminding them of. And here's really why Jesus is telling them to do this again and again, to remember him. Because he understood something. That over time, as people walk with him and obey him, it would start to get fuzzy what makes a person a Christian. Have you ever asked, been asked that question by a kid? What does it mean to be a Christian? It's shocking how often we respond to that question with moral answers. Well, you don't lie. You have to be nice to people. When people do bad things, you forgive them. We're training our children 
to be moralistic creatures. When it says, what does it mean to be a Christian? We tell them all the good behaviors that make a person a Christian on their own merits. Now, that doesn't mean that's not how Christians act or should act. But what is it that makes you Christian? Is it your choices and your moral behavior? That's a big part of it, to be sure. But what Jesus is saying is, what is about to happen to me, what I'm going to do, is what makes a human being belong to God. When you say, I'm a Christian, what does it take to be a Christian? Never begin with moral answers, because you cannot start in that place. There's lots of people who have no time for Jesus, know nothing about the living God, and are more moral and upright than you and I will ever hope to be. That's the honest truth. Some of the best Christians are not Christians. They follow the rules impeccably on their own. What makes us Christian is that one day the eyes of our hearts were opened by God to what Jesus did and who he is. And in act, in a moment of faith, we trusted him to cover over all the things that need to be covered. That there was this impossible gap between us and God because all the things we had done separated us from him. And that, that gap was too great for anything we did to bridge. We were separated from him and he closed that gap for us. Only he could do it. It was like when you're in a fight with someone who refuses to forgive you. And they had all the powers in their hands. You could try everything, every gift, every word, every apology, every groveling, and all the power resides in them to let you back in or not. That is an intoxicating level of power for most people. I've held that power. I've been at the mercy of that power. And it's that situation times a billion with God. It wouldn't have mattered what we did. He closed that gap himself because only he could. And Jesus calls us to this meal to remember this is how it started. This is the only way it remains in your life. You will never make yourself a Christian because you believe the right things and did the right behaviors. That is not what makes you Christian. It might be what makes you moral, easy to live with. It might make your life a very effective advertisement for the change that God produces in a life. But it is not what makes you belong to God. And that is such good news for us to remember. Because we come to the Lord's table at very different places. Some of us are in the running to be the valedictorian of the church. Some of us, man, we are faithfully grinding it out. Even when it's hard, we continue to be faithful. Some of you are, are in that place right now. And yet, in your heart of hearts, you know, every day you wrestle with the edges of fatigue, maybe bitterness, the temptation to just rest and quit. Maybe you've been so good for so long, doing the right thing at every opportunity, but secretly in your heart, you're harboring this exhaustion. Like, how much longer can I keep this up? And the good news at the Lord's table is that if you're one of the A students, it is not your grades 
that makes you acceptable to God. But that he looks on you as his beloved child. And he has a tenderness towards you that I have toward my kids, that any of you would have toward your kids, not because of merit, but because they're yours. Because they belong to you. That's the heart of the Father, and that's what He wants you to feel when you are one of the A students, running hard, doing good. It's not that He has a problem, that He's honored by that, but He's telling you that is not what paves the road between you and Him. It is this event we remember which roots us in the faith. And maybe you're on the other side of that equation. Maybe you are coming to the Lord's table filled with shame, regret, frustration, You know the difference between right and wrong, but it's been really hard for you to do what you know is right. And you come to the Lord's table in a heap of failure, just feeling defeated, wounded, unable to find the motivation to walk with God because of your own failings or because others have really hurt you, disillusioned you. And God invites you to the Lord's table to remind you of something important. That that's exactly the shape all of us were in the first time we came to the table. And for the person who is wrestling under the weight of failure and defeat, the Lord's table is a reminder that the death and resurrection of Jesus means that it could be today, day one of a new life that you don't have to leave that table in the same place you came to it. Because there was a day a long time ago when you were living far from God, separated from Him, and at that place of acceptance, He saved you. I don't know if you need to come to the Lord's table today to find freedom from the exhaustion of being good, being good, doing good having forgotten why good mattered to you at all. Or maybe you need the hope that the Lord's table brings. Either way, the invitation is extended. This is the place to go when your heart has grown numb. It is to this place of remembering where it all began. I'm going to confess to you that it's only in the last three months that I've come to grips with just how much the last two years have affected me. I'm noticing the profound ways that I've changed as a person. I've become more honest about the state of my own heart. And I found that I've had to go intentionally again and again in my morning times with God to the memories of the day of my salvation. It seems like nearly every other day now, I'm sitting at that corner in my room, dwelling on that day in Deerfield, Illinois, when I was 16 and a half years old. Because that day has this powerful ability to bring me back to my roots. And I've had to go there again and again, because I'm seeing today just how deeply last couple of years have done a number on me. Some of you have already been there for a while. You've known how much you've been affected. I think I may have been in denial or I was just rushing through. And I'm grateful that I have a place I can go where I can remember where it all began for me. 
At the Lord's table, we also remember our unity. Over the years after that first dinner in that upper room, this celebration of the Lord's Supper had become a common practice in the life of the church. In fact, many churches, scholars agree, they did this every time they met. Every week when they gathered for collective worship, communion was received as a way of remembering Jesus according to his wish. And in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul addresses the way the Lord's Supper was being conducted at that particular church, and it gives us some really important insights into what the Lord's Supper is supposed to mean in the life of the church. I think everyone knows that the dinner table is like the heart of most homes. Would you agree with that? It's not just the dinner table. Breakfast, lunch, probably all eaten there. But the table where the family gathers to eat together, that's the true heart of most homes. It may not be the fanciest room or the cleanest room, but it's the room that's supposed to be the nerve center. And when a family is doing well, that table is filled with laughter and connection. It is a joyful place to be. And if you've ever gone to a home, maybe you've been a guest at a family's house where their family is really tight, really connected, and you watch their dinner conversation, that dynamic, you get envious. You're like, wow, this is crazy. Your family really digs each other. Come to dinner at my house, it's just like, mother, pass the salt. And like, just everyone's tense because when a family's not doing well, when a family's not connected, it can also be a place of conflict and discomfort. And my family over many years that we've been a family has gone back and forth between both those realms. There have been days where our dinner table is a place that just fills my heart with warmth. And there are other days where my skin is crawling and I cannot wait to be finished eating. I eat real fast sometimes. Just so I can be done. Because that place is such a powerful external symbol of what's really going on in my family. That's partly what this meal, this table, represents for the church. In a family that is connected, that is united, the table becomes a bonding place, a place where we celebrate the thing that most joins us together. And in a family that is really struggling, this table becomes a really conflicted place. Because I sit at that table yearning to connect vertically with a God who loves me and who I still love. But I sit at that table with people that I'm at odds with. And it's a hard place to be. In the very beginning of his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul tips his hand to why he's writing the letter at all. Verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. What Paul is saying is that the division, the disunity in the church was the motivation for the entire letter. And if you read 1 Corinthians, the whole thing is a giant plea for a divided church to find some way back to reconciliation and unity, to tell a divided church, if you are the family of God, you must be a whole, united family. 
The division in that church broke the heart of God, even though within that division, people still tried very hard to connect vertically to God. Their horizontal divisions were breaking God's heart. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul now directs his attention to the Lord's table. And here's here's what he begins to say. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. And listen to this. This is a hard thing to hear. For your meetings do more harm than good. You may be meeting in Jesus' name, Paul says, but it would almost be better for God's people if you stop meeting because your meetings are creating more damage than help. I read that this week and I really had to reflect. Because this church, I'm the lead pastor. And the way we all together experience this church, I have to bear responsibility for a lot of that. Those are not easy words for churches to hear. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. And then Paul says, this division isn't just marking all of your regular church meetings. It's extended even to the dinner table of the family of God. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. In the early church, the Lord's Supper was more like a potluck dinner than what we do here. It was less ceremonial and more oriented around fellowship. It truly felt like the dinner table of a giant family. In about a month, all of us, probably most of us, are going to sit at, a, at maybe the most happy or the most awkward dinner gathering of the year. Because Thanksgiving, you got to be with family. For a lot of families, it's like, oh, let's quickly get through and go home. For other families, it is a joyful, joyful time. But that celebration where everybody from all corners gathers, that's what the Lord's Supper was meant to be in the early church. People brought whatever they could in proportion to their resources, and those who had more brought more, those who had less brought less, but it was all put together on a common table, and everyone shared the meal fully without regard to what they brought. And when a family is doing well, that's fine. I'm happy to care for you and to share with you, because you're my family. When a family is in division... That caring and sharing impulse kind of wanes, doesn't it? How do you feel when you come to a gathering and everyone was explicitly told, could you please bring one thing and like three people bring nothing? You're watching them like, don't eat too much, man. Why are you drinking so much of the wine? You didn't bring anything. That was expensive. You start to get a little, I was thinking about this in in about a month. Our church is going to have a giant potluck luncheon for Thanksgiving. And every year we ask the community groups to to pull together and uh, the groups do a great job. I want you to imagine because every group was asked to bear a burden for this lunch and make a contribution. And on Sundays, that's a hard thing when we have to be at church 
Some of us, we start the day here at 8 a.m. When are you going to have time to take something out of the oven, to bring it all cut up and bring it here? And so it's an extraordinary effort to do that. And I was just imagining, imagine like none of the groups brought meat. (laughs) And your group brought an amazing array of food. And you're looking around like, what is everyone's problem? And as everyone lines up to the meal, maybe you and your group huddle and you're like, no one else took this seriously. Why should we share everything? So your group goes to the table, grabs all the stuff you brought, brings it back to another table, and, you, and then you, you make, a, make a fence around. And you go, this is our stuff. You guys didn't bring anything. Sorry. And you start chomping away. And everyone's like, what is it? That's the picture Paul's describing. The issue was not that they were just rude and selfish in table manners, but the table manners arose out of how they felt about each other. Because here's the truth. If, you, if you're disconnected from people, divided from people, you don't care what your manners are like. It doesn't matter. Everything I make you feel, everything I do to you, you deserve anyway, so you don't have to be careful anymore. You feel justified in the way that you're being callous because already somewhere upstream, you feel like that person broke fellowship with you. I think we've all felt that. And what Paul is saying is regardless of how the conflict came about, seeing his family eat this way at the shared table breaks the heart of God. In fact, it is one of the most ultimate betrayals of the spirit of the gospel because that's the very central problem of humanity which God came at great cost to solve was the the fractured relationship between us and him, between us and one another, and between us and the creation around us. Every relationship in reality was fractured by sin. And Jesus Christ creates a bridge to repair all those fractured relationships. That is the heart of the gospel. That's at the heart of this communion meal. It's meant to be a table where we sit and remember this one thing is the only thing that has to to be shared in common with one another. We don't have to have the same ethnicity. We don't have to have the same income or education level. We don't have to share the same interests or personalities. In our church, we have about 50-50 extroverts and introverts, and we still manage to be a family. Awesome. Some of us like sports. Some of us hate sports. Some of us are Apple. Some of us are Android. We're still a family. This is the nature of family. You could be so different. Just think about your upcoming Thanksgiving family dinner. You know someone's going to talk about one thing in politics and someone's going to talk about the other, and there's going to be a massive argument. You just It's going to happen. And you're already like kind of sphincters clenched in anticipation of that, right? Like you're just, oh. In a family, though, you can hold wildly different sentiments, have different worldviews, different personalities, but there is one thing that bonds you in spite of that. And you're like, if we weren't family, I'd never sit at a table with you. But what are you going to do? We're family. And it's that blood that makes us family. At this table, what we're remembering every single time is this is truly the only thing that we essentially have to have in common. We don't need to share politics. We don't need to share views and opinions on everything. But the starting point of this family is simply this. Every one of us is meant to have a shared experience of an awakening to the living God through Jesus Christ. That because of our faith in what he did, the bridge that was fractured between us and God was rebuilt. 
And we now live as citizens of his kingdom, a whole new life, different than what we lived for before. And that all began at what this table represents. It is our only true essential commonality. Everything else can be as different as you want. It's not that easy to do that in practice. It's easy to feel it, to want it. There have been times when my family felt fractured, far from each other. And I, it breaks my heart. It also makes me feel guilty because I'm the father in that family. And I look at that situation and I think, where did I go wrong? I hate that feeling. And I long to see my family reconnected. And in those moments, I don't know where to start. I'm, I'm really at a loss. It's not easy for a family to walk in unity. There's a cost. Sometimes that cost is humility. Sometimes it's forgiveness. Sometimes it's openly acknowledging and repenting of the harm you've done to others. It is never cheap in instituting and, and propagating this practice of communion. Paul, when? Same night that he was most grievously betrayed. And then when Judas finished betraying him, the rest betrayed him by running away. Peter, his very best friend, betrayed him three times. Denying he even knew who Jesus was. See, this to hold people together who hurt each other, who sin against each other, who are terribly, irreversibly imperfect. He knows that cost. The leader of the church on this earth. It was easy for Jesus to have that conversation on the beach with Peter. Say, Peter, a few days ago, what? he was betrayed. i got to finish quickly here. I'm going a little too long, so let me finish. As you come to the table today, I'm going to ask you to be mindful that God gave us a meal that's not supposed to be in isolation. The way we typically practice communion is very solitary. It's very individual. I think we need to change that in the years ahead. It's meant to be a shared meal. And so today, even though we are set at this table, and there's going to be a very individual, personal component to this, I'm going to ask you to go out of your way to acknowledge the people around you. That as you sit down, please make eye contact with the person serving you the elements. They're not a drone, <laughs> you know, an automaton. They're a human being. They're serving you the elements. Look at them and say thank you. Look to your left and right. Acknowledge that there are people who are sitting at the Lord's table with you. And just share a smile. You don't have to have fellowship and chit-chat, but just a smile. And acknowledge that we're at the table together. And then as you're taking it, if you're in conflict with someone because of a thing you did or a thing they did, at this table, resolve in your heart because of what you're remembering, what Jesus gave his life to accomplish. Resolve in your heart that you will make peace if it is within your power to do it. That you would relentlessly pursue unity in the church. Even if that means you have to eat your pride. Even if that means you have to face the ugliness in your own heart. That is never easy for us to do. I've been made to do it lots lately, and it's not fun. But at this table, we resolve not to live in separation with our brothers and sisters. That is a firm resolution we make.
at this table. Let me give you one last quick thought. At the Lord's table, we also remember our destiny. Jesus said that this would be the last time he shares this meal with his disciples and that he would not do it again until his return. When history is over in this present age and he makes all things new. He says, one day we will be reunited and on that day I will drink from this cup again and I will eat from this loaf again. And what he's referring to is what Revelation 19 describes as the wedding supper of the Lamb. A glorious celebration in the throne room of heaven that was part of the vision God gave to the Apostle John. Where every creature that belongs to God is reunited with Jesus Christ. And as we look back on the hardness of this life, on how enormously difficult it was to hold on to faith and continue being faithful in this broken world. All the times when we could have taken the easy way and we didn't, and we endured hardship, we took responsibility. Every one of those times tempted us to wonder, is any of this worth it? What's the point? And at the Lord's table, we remember that one day, We will be reunited with him. We will share this bread and this cup with him face to face. And on that day, we will take those hard-earned crowns off of our heads, lay them at his feet in worship, and we will say to him, I didn't realize along the way how worthy you are, but I'm so glad I finished well. Because seeing you here today, I realize you are worthy. Everything I put up with, every sacrifice I made, I see now that you're worthy. And when we take this cup and this bread, we are remembering something in our future that is sure to come. A day where everything we have put up with, everything we have given up, will be vindicated and justified. And so we do it to gain strength when we're about to quit to say, I don't know if I can keep living like this. I'm so tired. I'm so discouraged and empty. But at the Lord's table, we remember one day, if we finish the race well, we will be guests at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that day, everything will make sense. In the face of Jesus, you're going to see the one who was worth it. We're going to do communion today. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, we're we just going to play music? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead and start the music, it's okay. We're going to serve communion in the Scottish style, and that's just a terminology we use for the, historically the way the Scottish Presbyterian Church served it. You'll come to a table, and a steward will serve you the elements. And you'll take a moment and just prepare your own heart. If the servers can come forward and then after you've done that remember just make brief eye contact the people around you acknowledge one another and then you take the elements at your seat but I asked you to remember the things that Jesus intends for us to remember if what you need most is to remember where your life with Jesus began let this meal take you there to recapture the wonder of the good news of the gospel
Because maybe today is a terrible disappointment. But this journey began once in great joy and optimism. We remember his death by which our new lives began. If you come to the table and you feel that your heart is racked with the desire to connect to God, but a conflict with someone else, I'm not going to ask you to do something awkward like walk up to them right here. What I'm going to ask you to do is at this table as you receive the grace of Jesus, resolve in your heart to make, make a conscious step towards reconciliation. Resolve in your heart that because of what Jesus did, his family is meant to live in peace and unity. And if you've been running hard and losing steam, and you just need some hope, let this meal remind you that one day you will receive the bread from the hand of Jesus himself. And you'll see in his face how worthy he was for everything you endured in this life. I invite you now, as you feel ready, to come and take the elements. If you are uncomfortable taking the elements in this form, I believe we have some set up in the back, some of those uh, instant kits that you can do. I'm sorry, at uh, this table here. You can take one back to the table and do it on your own or just stay at the table and lower your mask and take it there if you would like. So with that, I'm, I'm going to stop talking and invite you as you feel ready to come and take the elements and sit back down. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.